0: Strange Studies of Strange Stories. It was a Saturday afternoon on Maple Street, and the late sun retained some of the warmth of a persistent Indian summer. People along the street marveled at winter's delay and took advantage of it. Lawns were being mowed, cars polished, kids played hopscotch on the sidewalks. Old Mr. Van Horn, the patriarch of the street who lived alone, had moved his power saw out on his lawn and was fashioning new pickets for his fence. A good humor man bicycled in around the corner and was inundated by children and by shouts of, Wait a minute, from small boys hurrying to con nickels from their parents. It was 4.40 p.m., A football game blared from a portable radio on a front porch, blending with the other sounds of a Saturday afternoon in October. Maple Street, 4.40 p.m. Maple Street in its last calm and reflective moments. Before the monsters came. Welcome
1: to the first official episode of Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I am Chris Lackey.
2: And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. We're here at strangestudies.com and on Patreon. This is episode one of the show, but we have been broadcasting for 13 evil years as the HP Lovecraft literary podcast on hppodcraft.com. We began by covering the works of that author exclusively for three years and then broadened the scope to include other authors working in or around the
1: weird fiction genre for the next 10. This new show expands the focus even more to cover what we're calling strange stories. We produce one free show a month, but if you subscribe through Patreon, you get additional three shows each month, as well as a show featuring listener comments and a bonus episode on non-story topics. That's six shows a month.
2: You can get it all at patreon.com slash witchhouse media. If you're new to the show, Chris and I grew up together in Illinois. He now lives in England, and I've recently moved back to the Midwest from Los Angeles, where we both worked in and around the film industry for years. On each Each episode of the podcast, we discuss a piece of fiction, sometimes with classy guests such as Ramsey Campbell was on recently, Patton Oswalt as a recurring guest, Steven Spielberg, or (laughs) at least somebody named Steven Spielberg has been on the show. This discussion is punctuated by talented voice actors bringing the text to life. Speaking of which, who was that reader we we just heard a moment ago?
1: Why, that was Andrew Lehman. Andrew is an incredible actor and an even better human being. He is also one of the creative forces behind the HP Lovecraft Historical Society, the HP You can go there for all sorts of cool props. They make movies, they have radio dramas, merchandise, podcasts, all focused around the works of H.P. Lovecraft.
2: So now you know who the strange studiers are. What do we mean by strange stories? On H.P. Podcraft, we covered weird fiction, which sounds pretty similar. Weird fiction was Lovecraft's ideal, which was horror fiction that breaks with tradition and includes a touch of the unnatural, the outside, a more existential cosmic horror rather than just something goes bump in the night. Although we, we
1: covered plenty of that as well. I would say that weird fiction is contained within what we're calling strange stories.
2: But we wanted to go beyond just saying we're broadening our scope to include more stuff yeah. and try and define an ideal for what we want to cover on the show.
1: We'll restrict our pool of authors to those no longer living, for the most part. Mm. And we want to cover genre fiction, horror, science fiction, fantasy. For the most part, <laughs> I am personally interested in covering more classic science fiction.
2: Beyond that, though, what, what is it that we're looking for? Because as I, as I was sifting through the science fiction, a lot of those are just escapist adventure stories. And there's definitely a place for escapism. We all need that. Mm. But I feel there's a higher standard that maybe we're we're seeking. Look, we'd already decided on this Strange Stories title, to be honest. That came yep. first. <laughs> so we did a little reverse engineering. There's this Russian literary theorist named Viktor Shklovsky, who wrote an essay called Art as Device in 1917. I think Victor hit on what we're holding up as an ideal here. Mm. Let me read the abstract of Art as Device written by translator Alexandra Berlina. We get used to horrible things and stop fearing them. We get used to beautiful things and stop enjoying them. We get used to people and stop experiencing them as personalities. Art is is a means to make things real again. While the romantics only sought to actualize the beauty of the world, Shklovsky sees art also as a way to make its horrors felt. So this concept in Victor's work he described as ostrenyny, which is often translated as defamiliarization or estrangement. Mm. It's the artistic technique of presenting to audiences common things in an unfamiliar or strange way so that they can gain new perspectives and see the world Mm differently. And I think that's what we're looking for here. Gripping fiction that provides perspective. When I got to this definition, finally, it instantly made me think of Rod Serling. Yes. The TV writer who legendarily became frustrated when his thoughts about serious issues were being censored Mm -hmm. and who came up with the solution of using aliens and robots and haunted dolls to get around those censors and provoke more serious thought. Just as H.P. Lovecraft blew my mind growing up, so did Rod Serling's show The Twilight
1: Zone. That show was a huge influence on me, and I think most writers will tell you the same thing.
2: And that's not to say we're not going to tackle some more escapist fare. Just this month, we're talking about doing some Robert E. Howard, and that's often just really fun monsters, wish fulfillment, although it does sometimes sucker punch you with some thoughtful stuff. I mean, Conan occasionally gives an aside about the nature of reality or something (laughs) out of nowhere. But a lot of genre fiction is about the hero's journey, stories that reassure us that good will prevail over evil. They serve a purpose. They're comfort food. But the criteria we're judging things against and we'll try to use to guide our material, we'll ask, is this a strange story? Meaning, did it cause me to think about a human experience or issue through this process of estrangement? And today's author was a master of doing just that. What do we know about Rod Serling?
1: Rodman Edward Serling was born in Syracuse, New York in 1924 to a Jewish family. He spent most of his youth in Binghamton, New York, and was a bit of a class clown and, as his teacher said, a lost cause. His brother said Rod would often act out scenes from pulp magazines and movies. As a teenager, he worked at the Binghamton radio station.
2: Developing that famous voice.
1: After high school in 1943, he enlisted in the army. He served in the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment. He saw combat in 1944 in the Philippines and was later transferred to a demolitions platoon that was called the Death Squad due to its high casualty rate. Serling saw lots of death, and he witnessed a bizarre accident during the war. Private Melvin Levy, a fellow Jewish soldier, was delivering a comic monologue for the platoon as they rested under a palm tree when a food crate was dropped from a plane above decapitating him. Serling led the funeral services for Levy and placed the Star of David over his grave. Obviously this shaped his future writing. Serling went on to fight in Manila his regiment had a 50% casualty rate, and Jeez. he was wounded three times, but not badly enough to be out of the fighting. After the war, he was troubled by nightmares and PTSD. He said this about the war. I was bitter about everything, and it loose ends when I got out of the service. I think I turned to writing to get it off my chest. Hmm. His military service helped pay for his education. He got a bachelor's degree in English literature. During school, he got involved with college radio. He wrote and directed and acted in many radio programs for the college and then the state, and that's where he met his wife, Carol Kramer. After college, Rob worked part-time testing parachutes, but gave that up before his wedding.
2: What exactly does testing parachutes
1: mean? Uh, Yeah, well here, this says, according to his radio station coworkers, he received $50 for each successful jump and had once been paid 500 half before and half if he survived for hazardous tests oh my god his last jump test was a few weeks before his wedding in one instance he earned 1000 for testing a jet ejection seat that had killed the previous three testers oh man in 1946 he started working for WNYC in New York as an actor and writer he then started to earn big money in 1950 when he got a gig over at WLW Radio in Cincinnati in 1953 he left Cincinnati for Connecticut made his living uh, writing for Kraft Television Theater Appointment with Adventure, and Hallmark Hall of Fame. It was in 1955 that a script he wrote changed everything for him. It was called Patterns, and it was for Kraft TV Theater. It got amazing reviews, and it made Serling a hot item. So in 1957, he moved his family out to California. He had a big problem there, though, with advertisers at the time, because they Mm. were also the censors. They had control over scripts. One of his teleplays, Noon on Doomsday, was about a Jewish pawnbroker that got lynched. But they heavily edited the show... And it was almost unrecognizable from his original script. He said it was about the murder of Emmett Till.
2: Now, if folks don't know, Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy who was abducted, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi in 1955. He was African-American. He was accused of offending a white woman in his family's grocery store. It was a horrific crime. His mother insisted that he have an open casket funeral. So that the world would have to see what was done to her son. Mm-hmm. And it was a real catalyst for the civil rights movement in America. In fact, just this year, the Emmett Till Anti Lynching Act was signed into law in 2022. Mm-hmm making lynching a federal hate crime. So the impact of that incident is still being felt 70 years later.
1: Serling returned to the Emmett Till story in a town has turned to dust, but again, it was heavily edited and changed. Obviously, he was frustrated. He says, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to have to battle sponsors and agencies. I don't want to have to push for something that I want and have to settle for second best. I don't want to have to compromise all the time, which in essence is what a television writer does if he wants to put on controversial themes. And that is why he created a show called The Time Element, which was changed to The Twilight Zone. There you go. The Twilight Zone aired on October 2nd, 1959 on CBS. It ran for five years with 156 episodes, 92 of which were written by Serling.
2: The last episode of the first season was the story we're covering today, Mm -hmm. The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. And I still remember seeing it in syndication, but I actually also read the short story when I was young. Mm -hmm. In the early 60s, Serling himself wrote short story versions of some of his more famous episodes. Mm -hmm. They were released in three volumes. Volumes, and my uncle gifted them to me. I had those three books. These original books, they're collected in a volume called Stories from the Twilight Zone. And uh, that's where we read this. That's where I pulled it from. That collection is introduced by Ted Klein, mm-hmm. who actually is the one living author we did cover on the last show, his that's excellent right. uh, The Events at Porath Farm. He likes these stories. I love these stories. The book is available if folks, folks want to read them. You obviously could watch the television shows. But I think Sterling's a great prose writer as well as he yeah. is a teleplay writer. And he invests the short stories with some real texture.
1: I really enjoy reading the stories. I've been reading a few of them and he's a really good writer. Now in 1969, Sterling had another series, Night Gallery. and It was an anthology series. He wasn't as happy with it
2: though. Night Gallery's pretty all over the place and it's not quite as quality a show as The Twilight Zone.
1: Rod was a heavy smoker and he had a heart attack, then died four days later at the age of 50.
2: <sighs> That's oh. so young. The Monsters are doing Maple Street, although it feels very 1950s, it's also very relevant in any age that you read it. When I flipped through the book, I thought, well, this would be a good one to start with because how can you beat that title for one? It's an amazing title. Mm-hmm. And uh, the message is also very clear. One might even think obvious, but it's expertly delivered. Yeah, It transcends a simple analogy. Uh, yes, at the time it was addressing the Red Scare, I think, when it came out. It was addressing yeah. civil rights. But right now when I read this, it just as easily addresses social media, internet hoaxes that prompt violent behavior. Yeah. It, it's a great example of a strange story. So why don't we just jump into it?
1: Our story begins in a Indian summer. It's a late summer day, even though it's actually October for them, on Maple Street. It's an all-American, idyllic, suburban neighborhood.
2: Yeah, and that's one thing that stood out to me after watching the episode of the show last night. There's a, a slight difference between the teleplay and this, because in the show, Sterling just says it's late summer. But if you listen to the opening of the short story that Andrew read, it's actually, as you say, an unseasonably warm day in October. It's been running hot and cold, and people are marveling at the delay of winter and scrambling to take advantage of it by getting these summer activities in one last time, watering the lawn, getting ice cream, whatever they can do to enjoy this last bit of good weather. It brings this sense of urgency that's not necessarily there in the show. And, you know, metaphorically, we see this is a civilization having its last bite of innocence before the winter comes or, as he says straight up, before the monsters came. It's even late in the afternoon. It's 440. So everything is waning It's the calm before the storm.
1: This guy, Steve, is an ex-Marine. He's washing his car. When whoosh, a sound is overhead and a light that is so bright it overpowers the sun flashes across the sky. His neighbor, Don, sees this too and asks Steve, what was that? Steve guesses, a meteor? But there was no crash. Steve's wife comes out asking what's going on and he sticks with his meteor theory.
2: One thing that we touched on a lot in our study of weird fiction was the idea that things happen that are just never explained in life. Sometimes it's something like a weird meteor, actually, in some of our stories. But but this inciting incident is just, it's just that. It's something that happens, everybody witnesses it, but nobody knows what it is. Mm. And it's never explained to them. Certainly this has happened to me in the past, where there's a big sound or crash or a light in the sky. It happened a lot in Santa Monica, where I would then be on Twitter trying to find out what happen mm-hmm. along with other neighbors whom i don't know personally you know but who are in the, also tweeting in the area and we're trying to put together what was that bright light in the sky and of course theories start popping up right away based on pure speculation
1: now when she goes back into the house she notices that everything is quiet nothing is running Everything has lost power in the house, and it's not just her place, it's the whole neighborhood.
2: Old man Van Horn is sort of the patron of the neighborhood. He walks off to see what's going on in other neighborhoods. So he goes out to collect some information and disappears from the scene.
1: This guy, Charlie, he's a tubby fellow with a Hawaiian shirt, comes out on the road demanding to know what's going on. All the neighborhood comes out and everybody's wondering, was this due to this meteor, this flash? But that's weird because nothing is working, like battery powered things aren't working. So it's not a blackout.
2: Yeah, the electricity's one thing, but I think even a hose stops spraying water suddenly. So nothing is working. Yeah. And I love the sensation of everybody sort of waking up in this moment, the devi- that things die out because that's how it feels whenever devices go off. I don't know if you've ever worked in an office when the internet drops out for some <laughs> reason, but it's like suddenly people look up where have I been all day? You know, they're yes. looking at each other and talking, and you hear, like, laughter and conversation. What is this strange environment I'm in?
1: Charlie tells Steve that he should go downtown and chat with the police. It's like, who's he to be bossing <laughs> folks around? This Charlie's a real piece of work. Steve tells him it's not a power failure.
2: There's no nuance to Charlie. In the episode, they tried to make him okay at the beginning of the of the show a little bit but in the story he's immediately described as fat and dumpy with an unpleasantly high voice and he's He's trying to get people to do things for him right away. You know he's going to be the antagonist. I think there's shades of this character and the guy in Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. I thought the story was really good at keeping the characters a little general or at least discussing them in terms of uh, professions or habits. You know, we've got an ex-marine, a recent widow, mm-hmm. the patron of the street rather than this guy's black or white or Jewish or, you know, mm-hmm. ethnicities or religions. The show, the television episode, sets it squarely in 1950s white suburbia. But the text of the story could really be adapted. to to any neighborhood, any group of people. It's really attacking prejudice in a more general sense. However, it's funny how even... Serling can't help but reveal a little of his bias in the writing Mm -hmm. because there's some shorthand here saying, look at this fat, dumpy guy. Obviously, he's an idiot. Mm -hmm. It was making me laugh, not at the expense of the character, but because I wondered, wait, maybe the story will turn out different than the episode. Serling will end up saying we can't let all these minor prejudices distract us from the real enemy, fat guys with high pitched voices.
1: (laughs) Steve goes to his car, but it won't start either. Charlie then tells Steve that he should walk downtown to the police station. This guy, Don, says he'll go with Steve, but then this 12-year-old boy, Tommy Bishop, comes running up yelling, don't go. That's what they want you to do. The aliens.
2: Yeah. And something here happens that I found interesting. Our main character, Steve, he asked the boy what he's talking about. What do you mean by this? And I get the sense that he's doing that in order to dispel a crazy notion. Yeah. You know, let's air your theory about the aliens and then I'll be able to explain why it's crazy. And that's almost the fatal mistake of the story mm-hmm. by allowing this theory to be voiced, even though it's in the service of dispelling it, the idea gets out. Yeah. And this is obviously relevant in the world of social media. I mean, how often do people republish something in order to mock it or hold it up for derision? But what they're really doing is amplifying that voice because nobody reads the comment. They just read the original thing. And that's what happens here. He goes, tell me about these silly aliens uh-huh. so that I can knock it back. And that's not what happens.
1: Tommy goes on to explain that this is just like one of his comic books. This is an alien invasion. And what the aliens want to do is infiltrate the neighborhood.
2: He says in every story he's read about a spaceship landing from outer space, this happens. And in one particular, he may have just read, there's a, a fake family with a yeah. parents and two kids and they're imposters.
1: The aliens uh, will have a family move in months or years in advance that seem totally normal, but are really aliens in disguise. Everybody laughs Tommy off, but the kid is really insistent on it and it sort of sets everybody on edge.
2: The Twilight Zone gets rebooted every decade or so as well. There was a reboot in the 80s that I loved. There was one in the 2000s. I think it was Forest Whitaker was hosting that one. And they did a newer adaptation of this story in which it was more solidly about profiling and terrorism. Mm -hmm. But it's a leap that's taken here. They all see some kind of UFO, but the idea that they've been infiltrated, that is entirely introduced by the boy. Yeah. There's no evidence of that at all. None. And it's just like in life when things are uncertain, Somebody will say, well, I don't have the exact solution, but I can tell you who's causing this, it's them. Yep. So if we can all just hate those people, then it feels like maybe we have some more control over uh-huh. unknown situations.
1: Steve, an experienced leader, senses this, and he knows that fear can make people do crazy things. He knows he's got to keep everybody cool. So he makes a joke and it seems to ease the tension, but then a car starts turning over, or at least trying to start. And it's this guy, Ned Rosen, and he's in the driver's seat. At first, nothing's happening, but then suddenly it starts without him doing anything.
2: And this is in a world that's never seen Knight Rider. So an incredible, (laughs) incredible incident. He couldn't get the car going himself. It just starts up all on his own. It actually was really creepy watching the show last night. It impacted me reading this, but that worked better in the episode because you see it (laughs) just start on its own as he's walking away from it. Mm -hmm. And you can understand why it would freak all the neighbors out.
1: And they start asking him, how did you do that? And he's like, I didn't do that. It did it on its own. And very quickly, Charlie gets suspicious. And this causes everybody else to get suspicious, except for Steve. Charlie keeps insisting that Ned tell him what's going on. And he keeps saying, I don't know what's going on. (laughs) It did it on its own. Ned can see that the crowd is getting aggressive, so he stands his ground and he gets aggressive right back. He
2: hasn't been outside. So he actually doesn't know how everybody's been talking or the science fiction business or anything. Mm-hmm. But the mere fact that he was inside, that he happened to be inside when the thing flew over is used against him. Yeah. You know, He didn't even seem to care when that thing flew over. He wasn't out here with the rest of us. <laughs> so he must know something. We see that people are forming a conclusion, and then they're scanning for circumstances that can reinforce that conclusion. Just how we sort of scan for a literary theory to accompany the new show title. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Something else that's interesting about Maple Street that I thought about this time is that it's a land of plenty. Economically, these people Mm -hmm. are in pretty good shape. Because I was seeing comparisons of this episode to other works later, like zombie movies, where people all turn on each other. Right. But in those, you know, there is a real demonstrable threat that causes that. People are fighting in a really primal way for resources. Sure. And when food and shelter are at stake, I think that tribalism is maybe more relatable. Serling actually has another similar story to this that was a Twilight Zone episode, and it's very excellent, called The Shelter, in which a neighborhood tears itself apart trying to get to the one bomb shelter during a, a, a scare, a yes. bomb scare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it gets to a similar point as this story. It covers some of the same ground. But I think this one is more effective in a way because survival isn't necessarily necessarily at stake. No. This is pure madness born out of simply not understanding some phenomena in the neighborhood.
1: Steve explains to Ned that all these idiots seem to think that there's a monster in the neighborhood for no real reason and that they have just lost their minds. <laughs> but right at that moment, Ned's car starts up on its own again and this causes a woman to scream when it happens because yeah. it's so horrific to her and that just gets everybody all ginned up. They keep telling Ned to explain what's going on with his car and he's tired of saying he doesn't know. <laughs> (laughs) This lady pops up and says that she's seen Ned outside in the middle of the night looking up at the sky. That's weird. Why would he look up at the sky? It's like he's waiting for something.
2: And that made me, you know, as a reader, I go, I do that sometimes. Yeah. You know, I'm an insomniac. I think like this guy, and so I'll just go out and wander around and walk at night. How many neighbors are watching me do that and thinking, what's he up to? Sometimes I break into their houses, but not all the time. No. Sometimes it's just because I can't sleep. Everybody's idiosyncrasies are being judged, and it just doesn't look good for him.
1: Steve thinks that's it, some stupid thing, and now everybody's convinced. And Ned can see what's going on, so he just tells them to get off his property, or he's going to start punching people. With that, they back off, but they're all still very suspicious.
2: And Steve wonders idly about old man Van Horn, who went off to get more information and hasn't come back yet. Is this also evidence that something bad is happening
1: as night comes there's no light people have the candles in their windows but it's dark everyone is staring at ned's front porch and he sat on the railing knowing that he's surrounded by a bunch of nuts they're just watching him now and it's really creepy yeah. charlie's wife mabel finds it hard to believe that ned and his wife could be aliens she's known ned's wife anne for years and charlie scoffs Any guy who looks up at the sky, come on. And he points at the darkened street and he says, look at that. Nothing but candles and lanterns. Why it's like going back to the dark ages or something. He was
0: right. Maple Street had changed with the night. The flickering lights had done something to its character. It looked off and menacing and very different. Up and down the street, people noticed it. The change in Maple Street. It was the feeling one got after being away from home for many, many years and then returning. There was a vague familiarity about it, but it wasn't the same. It was different.
2: He repeats that the neighborhood looks familiar but different, and how often in even recent years have I looked around and thought, I don't know these people around me at all. It's very relatable, that sense of dislocation, and I find it interesting that it's the person who's causing it to an extent, Charlie, mm-hmm. who's the one that notices, well, it looks like we've gone back to the dark ages or something. There's an <laughs> irony, even in the fact that he's the one that says that.
1: Now Steve goes over to talk to Ned, and Ned can see that Steve is being reasonable, and he Explains, look, I you know, I just don't sleep really well. I'm up at night and I like to look at the stars. Charlie yells across the street, Be careful who you're seen talking to, he shouts. Steve yells back at him, You too, Charlie. And then Steve yells to the neighborhood, and all the rest of you. And you can tell Steve really wants to punch Charlie. He tells him to go to his house and keep his mouth shut, and Charlie is defiant and says that all of them should keep an eye on Steve. Now, Don comes over and he says, okay, you know what, I, actually I gotta come clean. I know something about Steve. Steve's wife said that he's building a radio in his basement, but nobody's ever seen this radio. So Charlie confronts Steve and it's like, oh, so who are you talking to on this radio, Steve? And it says here, Steve's eyes slowly traveled in an arc over the hidden faces and the shrouded forms of the neighbors who are now accusers.
2: The thing about that, too, is that when that comes up, they go, your wife's been talking about how you're using that radio down in the basement. And I can just imagine that maybe she's sick of him and his dumb hobby. <laughs> you know, she's just, God, he won't take out the garbage or do any things I'm asking because he's down there playing with that toy. But when you put it in that different context, now it sounds like she's afraid. There's some kind of separation between them. It's a more reliable, weird thing because it came from his wife.
1: Steve says to Charlie, you're an idiot. Who do I talk to? Do I talk to aliens? Do I talk to monsters? That sounds so incredibly insane and Steve's wife can see that he's getting steamed so she tries to pull him back into the house and she says it's just a ham radio come and see it if you want Steve says no they cannot see it let them get a search warrant if they want to come into my house
2: she feels so bad about bitching about her husband
1: she's like I'm the one that bought him the book this all got out of hand
2: (laughs) but here we see that it was Don his neighbor actually who seemed reasonable before is the one who's making hay out of this radio business just as much as Charlie it's to be expected from Charlie I mean he's got that high pitched voice and he's (laughs) dumpy
1: but Don Steve asks Charlie, what are you going to do? Who are you to say who's dangerous and who's isn't? Who's safe and who's a menace? All you are looking for some scapegoat and you're willing to turn on your neighbors to do it. The only thing that's going to happen is that we'll eat each other up alive. Understand, we're going to eat each other up alive. And Don Martin yells, look, look. And they all see something moving down the street. And Ms. Sharp screams because she's horrified by this. A kid yells, it's a monster. Don Martin runs into his house. He gets a shotgun and he aims it at the thing. Steve snatches it out of his hand. He goes, what the hell are you doing? Wise up, people. But then Charlie snatches the gun from Steve and he just shoots this thing and it drops. Steve runs over to see what it is. And of course, it's Pete Van Horn. Don says, oh God, he was just gonna go check on the next block over to see if they had power. That went off the rails pretty fast. So Mrs. Sharp yells at Charlie, you killed him. Charlie Farnsworth's face looked like a piece of uncooked dough quivering and shaking in the light of the lantern he held. Charlie starts crying and saying, why did he come out of the dark like that? You know why I shot. How was I supposed to know he wasn't a monster? Like (laughs) just the (laughs) craziest stuff is coming out of this guy's mouth. It's completely dark. How is he not supposed to come out of the dark? Uh, Yeah, exactly. It's, in, it's all insane. Why would one assume that you see something and it's a monster, it's just nut. it's madness.
2: My takeaway from this story is just to identify yourself as not a monster <laughs> if it's dark out. And if you don't do that,
1: yeah. Yeah, there you kind go. Your,
2: it's kind of on you.
1: Just then the lights of Charlie's house turn on but nobody else's house and they all look at him. Wait a minute, you just killed an innocent man and now your lights come on? So the mob just quickly turns on him.
2: That guy was coming back with information. Maybe that information was going to say that you're responsible Uh and you wanted to knock him off. One thing that's interesting about this is Ned in particular turns on him. And remember, Ned was the first accused. He was just looking up at the sky. Mm -hmm. He's pretty skeptical of the whole business. But because he was persecuted by Charlie in particular, Mm -hmm. when the suspicion is thrown that way, he's the first to pile on. And it just shows how that sense of being aggrieved can perpetuate the violent cycle. No amount of reason is going to stop this at this
1: point. Yeah. So Charlie begs, but they're not listening. Someone starts throwing rocks at him and he runs off. They end up cornering him and he says, it ain't me, but, but I know who it is. And they stop and they're like listening to him and they're like, oh yeah, so is it? And then he's like, oh, okay, I got him. He smiles. Tell us, Charlie.
2: Who is it? He doesn't know anything, but he's no. going to make something up to save himself. And by him pretending to know something to save himself, it actually gives credence to the initial fiction. Okay, somebody's finally admitted that this
1: is going on. So he says, it's the kid. It's Tommy. He's the one that told us all this alien stuff.
2: It feels a little like when the French Revolution goes on until the original leaders of the revolution are on the guillotine. You know, it just mm-hmm. eats itself. So now the per- how would he have known to tell us this if he's not the one responsible, this child?
1: Yeah. Some people start to say, you're full of it. But Mrs. Sharp points out, oh, yeah, he knew about all this alien stuff beforehand. Yeah. It's like, wait, what? There is no alien stuff. He's the one that introduced it, like the whole idea of it. like It's not there. All logic is gone with these people.
2: And I think Serling is landing it on the kid, finally, mm. to show it's the children who in the end suffer at the hands of prejudice and bigotry. Yeah. Because they inherit this insanity. <laughs> I mean, at this point, you have a bunch of adults now making an enemy out of a 12-year-old.
1: Yeah. So then the lights go on in Bob Weaver's house. So is it Bob? Charlie is yelling, it's the kid. Don is yelling that it's Charlie. They start going from house to house and it's just chaos after all that. We cut to a hill overlooking the neighborhood. There are two figures near a spaceship. One says to the other, you get it now? Just randomly turn on some lights and they'll do each other in.
2: It seems that kinda to an extent the kid was right. There are aliens, it is an invasion, Yeah. but they don't need to infiltrate anything.
1: It says, they pick the most dangerous enemy they can find and it's themselves. All we need to do is sit back and watch. The other asks, is this whole planet like this? Yep, we'll do it from one to the other and let them destroy themselves.
2: The two figures go up into the
0: spaceship and we hear them repeating one to the other, one to the other. When the sun came up on the following morning, Maple Street was silent. Most of the houses had been burned. There were a few bodies lying on sidewalks and draped over porch railings, but the silence was total. There simply was no more life. At four o'clock that afternoon, there was no more world, or at least not the kind of world that had greeted the morning. And by Wednesday afternoon of the following week, a new set of residents had moved into Maple Street. They were a handsome race of people. Their faces showed great character. Great character, indeed. Great character and excellently shaped heads. Excellently shaped heads. Two to each new resident.
2: And that's the end of the story. Two-headed aliens. That wasn't in the television show. No. We read another great science fiction story on the old show called The Screwfly Solution, which shared one commonality in this, in that the aliens didn't need to attack in order to depopulate. Mm-hmm. They made the men go crazy and attack the women. And this is a similar thing where they're just saying, we can, we can stoke division with just some random occurrences, and these people wipe themselves out. Yeah. It struck me this time that this role of the child who, you know, he tells everybody the fiction to begin with, that they begin uh, believing, that role is frequently in a story like this, the religious person. Yes. I, I just watched like Midnight Mass and there's The the Mist, that film that's an adaptation of the Stephen yes. King story. And in both of those, they have that zealot who starts explaining the unexplainable things with scripture. And people eventually get on board with that. I think that if you'd have made this person religious in the story, you would have gotten a gut reaction from some viewers where they they would have lost the plot of what you're trying to say because yeah. they would have been defensive if it was their faith. Sure. So it's very clever to have the person who knows how everything turns out from reading a bunch of books is the science fiction fan. Yeah. You know, as the kid who's read a lot, of, that's the books he knows a lot about. Not the Bible, but, no.
1: yeah, you know, weird
2: not. tales. It was a smart way to estrange that element so that we can see the problem isn't necessarily the form of, you know, the storytelling that he's relying on, but simply that he's saying, I have a solution. It's in this book. Yeah. And now let's all scan to make things match the solution.
1: It's true. And uh, just, it screams out to me, social media, uh-huh. the story, and obviously this came long before social media existed, but it's just it's true when it was written in the 1950s. Maybe it was about, like you said, the Red Scare that was going on.
2: And prejudices. In, in, in Rod Sterling's closing narration, he says, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own. And social media has monetized that. Yeah, You know, an interaction that's conflict-based is much more important I mean, these aliens at the end of this story seem like it's the people running Facebook and Twitter. All we need to do is get some memes out there and some things that people disagree on and they'll stay on here all day long. And we can take all of their resources from them. Every time I try to get people to stop using so much social media, I say, you know, you are creating free content for these people. Mm -hmm. So even if you're raging against a socially important issue, at the end of the day, these fat cats are making money off of you creating that free content.
1: So if you want to find out more about our show, Strange Studies, The Strange Stories, (laughs) you can go to our Facebook page or Twitter.
2: (laughs) Well, look, there there are positive interactions that happen all the time. They just aren't as valuable to the mavens who created this stuff. Of course.
1: I want to thank Andrew Lehman. Go check out the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society at hplhs.org for all of your radio drama, props, books, anything. Anything Lovecraftiana, you're going to find it there, and it's going to be of the highest quality.
2: They've got the best stuff there. It's so cool. Check out their films, The Whisper in Darkness, The Call of Cthulhu. Andrew's a wonderful person. We're so glad to have him along with us on the new show. That's all we have for this episode of Strange Studies of Strange
1: Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And you can find us at strangestudies.com.
0: Strange Studies of Strange Stories. (laughs)